Hello, and thank you for listening to the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. The Teaching Math Teaching Podcast is sponsored by the Association of Mathematics Teacher Educators. The hosts are Ava Thanheiser, me, Dusty Jones, and Joel Amadon. Today, we're talking with Dr. Farshid Safi, who just received notice he'll be promoted to Associate Professor of Mathematics Education in the College of Community Innovation and Education at the University of Central Florida. We've asked... Congratulations, Farshid. We've asked Farshid to talk with us today about his work with prospective mathematics teachers and mathematics teacher educators. Welcome, Farshid. Would you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Thank you uh, for having me. It's a pleasure to be with all of you. So I'm Farshid Safi, as you mentioned. I To tell you a little bit about myself, I don't separate my personal life from my professional life. So I, I love the fact that we're starting with who we are. And I was born in the U.S., but I grew up until the age of 13 in Iran. And so went through you know, the first part of my life and all the way through the start of high school over there. And then due to the war that was going on, we immigrated back to the U.S. And then I did high school and my college studies and have lived uh, here since then. But um, very proud to have gained perspectives from multiple cultures, multiple places, and uh, been blessed with wonderful family and friends all the way through. And doing that in the context of mathematics education is another huge privilege. Awesome. It's really interesting. The more people we get to talk to, the I'm really interested in learning about different perspectives and how they inform what we do and how we work with, in particular, with math teachers. How did you start teaching math teachers? Like everything else, it's, uh, I'd like to think of it as beautifully complex. So I didn't start off teaching math teachers. I started off teaching mathematics and uh, some of the classes that I was teaching as a graduate student at the University of Florida. I was teaching some content courses like the calc sequence, college algebra, pre-calculus, but then they would also ask me to teach this math for teachers class. And I didn't mm-hmm. know that I was teaching, you know, future change makers and uh, prospective teachers. I just thought it was sort of a a focused class. And um, so my first few years, I was teaching both mathematics content and then prospective teachers elementary. And then gradually, it wasn't until I was probably in my doctoral program that I realized, wait, you teach prospective math teachers on a regular basis. Did that start when you were, you said, a graduate student? Were you working on your master's or your PhD, or did it kind of span that right time? So what might be interesting is if I sort of gave you a timeline with movies and music, but I don't know if you have time for that. So Sure, go ahead. uh, (laughs) Oh, I would love uh, that. That's a new podcast right there. (laughs) I got my bachelor's in the early 90s in mathematics with specialization in teaching, and then I started grad school in math while I was tutoring and doing things like that. And I ran a math lab where we helped students learn uh, about calculus and college algebra and those classes. And I was doing that while I was taking graduate courses. And then I realized there was a huge disconnect between the graduate level theoretical mathematics that I was taking and how in no way was that connected to the experiences or opportunities to engage and help people who were trying to learn mathematics. And so it wasn't until then that I sort of focused on, okay, maybe my graduate studies and uh, 
thinking about a doctoral program should focus on math education and not mm-hmm. just on the mathematics component of it. Okay. Yeah. Cool. When you said movies and music, I thought you were going to let us know like, you know, something else like uh, it was the grunge <laughs> era or, you know, this Star Wars movie was out when I was doing <laughs> we, we could do that, but then uh, you'll find out that I don't do short answers very well. Okay. And so that would be a whole different podcast. <laughs> What was the best advice that you received when you started teaching math teachers? That if you want your students to be engaged, you have to help find the relevance from them and with them, as opposed to expecting the course or the curriculum to do that for you. Hmm. Who did you hear that from? It was one of the educational psychology professors at the University of Florida, I didn't know what student-centered teaching was, but it, uh, I think I was taking a personality dynamics course. And then he just talked about how we just have to focus on reaching people so we can teach. And that really resonated in ways that I'm still processing. Cool. And to turn that around, what advice would you give to someone who is starting out teaching classes for math teachers? To focus on the fact that We teach students mathematics, science, literature, other subject content areas. We don't teach mathematics per se. And I don't even, I'm not even convinced that mathematics as a subject needs teaching, but people Mm. need engaging and empowering and experiences in mathematical situations and or opportunities to analyze the world. So I would say the advice would be to be at least as patient with ourselves professionally and personally as we would be with our students. We are shaped as teachers of math and as MTEs by our own experiences as students of mathematics. How did your varied experiences you know, in Iran up until high school and then your high school experience here in the States, is there anything that any lessons that you drew from those different experiences that you used in your own teaching of teachers or even in your teaching of mathematics before that? Yeah, it's very interesting that you mentioned that because I think we are all influenced by our life experiences and they affect us whether we realize it then or only in retrospect. And I would say that things like learning a language like Mm -hmm. I had to do and like many of us have to do and learning a culture and learning to adjust, but it's all about sense-making and adjusting. And I think a lot of mathematical thinking and mathematical experiences involve in that almost sense-making exploration, getting stuck, getting a little less stuck, getting stuck again, but then trying to do this with other people towards a goal. So I think doing that socially, doing that academically, all of those things go hand in hand. I love that. I mean, just the idea of sense-making and adjusting, but with others. And you know, thinking of that from a cultural perspective, from math perspective, that's I'm writing yeah, that the, down. I'm writing that com- down. The conversation is: I've never heard someone say, "I live on my Earth," right? <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. it's sort of our world, and mm-hmm. so and what we do is what we plural do. Yes. So on my Earth, <laughs> <laughs> I want to follow up for sheet because I feel like reflecting on my own growing up bilingually in uh, Germany, that I always approached the world from kind of a sense-making perspective and a constructivist perspective, even though I didn't realize it when I was a kid. 
But I realized really early on that things that can be said in one language, you cannot say in another, or mm -hmm. you can't like express the exact same thing. And so this idea of construction versus reflection of reality, I think was kind of in there. And I went through school as a sense maker, but here's the hilarious thing. Like, I thought everybody went through school like that. And it took me right. way longer to figure out that that actually is not how mm -hmm. everybody else went through school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Eva, I love the fact that you're sort of connecting back to how we construct and how we reflect. Believe it or not, in high school, I took three years of German. And then in college, I took a couple of years of German. And I mentioned that not because of the connection with the German language, but because I would help people understand the grammar of doing languages using math. So you take this step, yes. and you take the yes. GE from the beginning, and then you add a T at the end. And then they're like, do you always think this way? I'm like, how do you not think about the structure of languages and mm -hmm. the way I had that to, uh, I just was going to add to that. I had to, or I had to learn Latin because as I was preparing to become a teacher in Germany, Mm -hmm. uh, and I was going to teach math and English. Latin was still a requirement. I don't know mm -hmm. why. And I don't know if it still is, but it was. And Latin is a language that is like literally mathematical. Right. And, uh, you know, since it's not spoken anymore, there isn't that much colloquialism. And so it's the exact same thing, like building it up like piece mm -hmm. by piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sorry for interrupting you. No, no, no. It's a shared conversation. And I love the fact that we compose and decompose in languages the way that we stress it in mathematics and in science and in other areas. It's just that to our students, these are separate universes. And that's up to us to do something about. Do you think that there's some just I'm chewing on these ideas here, but like the idea of sense making adjusting and going back to that and like and you're talking about you know, making sense of language, making sense of culture and like this idea of a process, right? And I think sometimes the criticism of the teaching of mathematics is that whatever is being taught, and I'm putting in quotation marks, it's great for podcast, is like, <laughs> does not make sense, right? It doesn't come prepackaged. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't understand it like from the get-go versus you're talking about you're always engaging in this process of sense making. And maybe that I don't know. Do you think that puts you in a better shape in doing mathematics? Because it is about sense making versus like, you know, maybe there's a, a preconceived notion, I don't know, from an American sample that this should make sense, right? I don't know if that's coming through. I think there's a common denominator to that in that the sense making and that process has to come along the journey and a progression mm -hmm. that it can't have necessarily a uh, an expectation of short-term success, even though a lot of what our students and sometimes we are forced to think about our short-term successes. And sense-making, like everything else in life, sometimes happens in a spiral and reflective fashion. And if our learning and if our experiences are somehow separate from that, then I don't know what we're doing because right. then we are purposefully detaching learning experiences and learning spaces from life experiences and just authentic spaces. And this notion of process and people to go back to the connection with language, that was also the first time that I realized that people, process, and power enter into decisions. Because like Ava mentioned, I was told that 
I needed to take a quote-unquote foreign language like German or French because it would help me in college understand mathematics at a graduate level. And I said, but wasn't a lot of mathematics also traditionally done in Persian, which is my first language, and mm. Arabic? How does that not empower us? <laughs> maybe the Hindu-Arabic numerals maybe right, came right. through somewhere. You know, yeah. and, and then they're like, well, no, that's not a language that counts. And that oh, phrase wow. still stays with me <sighs> because who gets to decide not only whose language, but whose math and what counts? Mm. Yeah. That's actually very timely right now, right? When there is legislature being passed all over the place about what can and cannot be taught in schools. Absolutely. Absolutely. And by the way, Ava, congratulations on the, on the grant that I think you and uh, a few other wonderful colleagues are going to be working on. I was like, ah, oh, so exciting, so needed. Thank you. But I would say that getting to think about the intersection, and I use that word on purpose, the intersection of people, stories, histories, traditions, culturally relevant aspects, and not at the expense of education, but connected to the purpose of education. And sometimes people form these false dichotomies, and they try to overstructure to achieve all the other goals. And those goals oftentimes come at the cost of just human beings and communities, and especially communities of color and marginalized groups. So, Farshid, I want to share a brief story. I'm currently teaching a middle school math teacher course, and I decided to teach it completely in context. We looked at If the World Were a Village, which is a task I've done a lot, and then we looked at gerrymandering, we looked at representation in Congress, we looked at uh, vaccine efficacy rates, and all of those kinds of things. And in week four or five, highlighted the math, mostly it's ratio and proportion, because that's um, middle school, but there's some linear functions and those kinds of things in there. And in like week three or four, one of my students said, I'm so glad that you reviewed today with us where the math was, because I didn't realize we were doing math. <laughs> and that got me thinking, like, we're so used to separating the math out as this naked thing that if we're doing it in context, Mm -hmm. students think, oh, that we're doing social justice or we're doing these things, but we're not doing mathematics because it's mm -hmm. not this naked thing. Right. I think it's those intentional connections that we tend to have in smaller pockets, but sometimes it's almost as if we, I'll say I in this case, sometimes as an educator, I presume that people are in, as involved in some of the day-to-day -day ways that one area, one focus connects with another. But I would say that's one of the areas where I believe academia has over-specialized to the detriment of people, where unless we provide these opportunities, especially prospective teachers and students at large, they don't get to see the connections. But if you grow up, like you know, many of us have, where you wonder and you marvel at architecture and nature and structure and people and traditions and history, and then the mathematics that goes into that. These are not separate things. They're all connected. And each one, it's almost like walking through a rose garden. 
and just noticing the structure of the rows as opposed to the beautiful smells and the structure and the way they lay together and where the sun might be and all of those things. Farshid, I'd like to get your insight on taking these ideas and, you know, with thinking about art and beauty and culture, and then how does that connect to the ideas of using technology, in particular dynamic technology, to explore and mathematical ideas? We first met, I think, about a decade ago at uh, at North Carolina State. I think is where I met you. Yeah, we were I looking at that. preparing. PTMT. Yeah, PTMT preparing to teach math with technology. So I know that you've got a bent or an interest toward using technology. So can you talk about? some of those intersections and overlaps between technology and beauty and mathematics and art and things like that? (laughs) Sure. Let me start by saying that I'm learning as I go, and I have the privilege of learning and growing with so many phenomenal colleagues over the years, including, say, PTMT and uh, learning about how content and pedagogy and technology come together and what's the role of TPAC in all of that. I would still maintain, by the way, that TPAC should be a three-dimensional model, not a two-dimensional model, but that's yet another podcast episode that we might form. But the idea that these intersections, some of them, I believe, are, are needed, but not if they become constraints. So, for instance, with our prospective teachers, we know that we need to work together on content and pedagogy and technology and equity and assessment, and all of these things, but it's not because then they should remain separate in our teaching or in our elevating of student thinking and student voice. So as math educators, I believe that we almost have to have at least a floor understanding of how some of these different components merge in working with students. And then from a research standpoint, I do fully acknowledge the fact that it is darn near impossible to do all of it at a research level to the fullest extent. Mm -hmm. But I think from working with prospective teachers, I do think it's absolutely essential. And I think this is where it is easier to do with elementary teachers than with secondary teachers, because secondary teachers already think, many of them, that they teach a subject area as opposed to teaching students many things. To me, part of technology is connected with the kind of questions and the kind of explorations that we can do that are worth the time that we have together. In other words, I think technology does allow us to not only notice and extend patterns, but also attend to different representations in wonderful ways and potentially take a focus of trying to view mathematics as calculation. So whenever I think of technology, I think of multiple representations. I think of the ways that it allows us to think about five practices, the ways that we can engage students or the ways that we can continue to push forward or linger over specific questions. Mm -hmm. And so if it allows us to model some of what happens around us, in order to understand them more deeply and more in a more connected and coherent fashion, then I think that is a huge affordance that technology needs to have pre-K to 20. Mm-hmm. Do you have a particular example of, uh, that you're thinking of, of how, how you've recently 
use technology in, in a way like this? When we quickly shifted to remote instruction, mm-hmm. then one of the things that we used to do was focus on the fact that noticing patterns and extending and understanding function types becomes vitally important. And trying to understand, say, linear versus nonlinear growth when it came to it seems like spring 2020 is a lifetime ago, but it really isn't. (laughs) But but then to also talk about how we can use technology to make predictions and then to be able to reflect and then find out if this is my conjecture, what are the implications? But not starting with the math and then ending it with connections to people, but actually starting with uh, with connections to people and communities, and then getting to the the mathematics and having the technology allow for this exploration. And then saying, you know what? We can't actually get at precision. It's not even possible right now. The idea is, what what are some possible ranges of outcomes? And then having a conversation about confidence intervals, having conversations Mm -hmm. about what are the different types of prediction models that we can have. So I guess that would be maybe one example yeah. uh, from the last year. So Farshid, as a as a math teacher educator or as a person, or you don't separate your personal life and your professional life. So as Farshid, what makes a good day? What makes a good day is, first of all, feeling like I've been the as good a partner, father, son, brother that I can be mm-hmm. on a personal level. And then feeling like I've been able to be uh, of service and of a way to just elevate and empower those that I have the good fortune of working with, whether that's undergraduate students, whether that's teachers in the classroom right now, or whether it's our graduate students or our doctoral students that I just grow so much with, or colleagues that I continue to just be amazed at the phenomenal things that I never thought that I would get a chance to explore. Mm -hmm. So what makes a good day is when I continue to elevate others while feeling like I'm adding to my own potential to keep growing with others. I told you I couldn't give you short answers. No, that's great. Part of the reason we have this podcast is to give people ideas, especially people who are starting out, about what other people have found useful and helpful and important. And so we like to ask our guests where they might go online to find resources. Do you have any go-to locations that you could recommend? Whenever I talk about resources, I connect it to people because people and perspectives have a lot to do with what those resources become and what kind of perspective they offer or they could potentially still grow in. I use Twitter a lot, Mm -hmm. but I also find that more recently, things like Mathagon are very nice as almost like a playground and as, as, as areas for exploration, especially for our teachers. I do a lot when going back to technology. So I use Desmos and GeoGebra as resources, and I keep encouraging our, our prospective teachers and our newer teachers to focus on how do you modify a resource before trying to create it from scratch yourself. Mm-hmm. Just for the sake of not only time, but the idea of being able to achieve things and modify it with people and communities and contexts in mind, 
as opposed to trying to create something without that consideration. And any curriculum, any other resource that I believe focuses on connections and progressions and coherence, then I'm all over it. What do you like to do for fun, Farshid? How do you balance things out? How do you? Fun starts with family time and good friends, but also to me, a lot of the fun activities that I do still have to do with wanderings and analysis that's happening in the background. Mm -hmm. So I love watching sports, but I am fascinated by the analytics of sports. And so for about 20, 25 years now, a few friends and I, we've been doing fantasy football and fantasy basketball and those things, because then it's context-based, but then it's also analytical, but it's also a prediction model, but it's also reality and things beyond your control. And so it, it teaches you humility, but it also teaches you that you can collaborate, but also be competitive in a good way. And sometimes the fun part involves being together in community with people you care about. And so if that activity has kept a group of us together and in communication for a couple of decades now, Mm -hmm. there must be something to it. We play fantasy football with my wife's family and Mm -hmm. my kids are old enough now to like understand and and we said, do you want a team? And they're like, well, I never win. And I'm like, we don't, we don't do this because we're trying to win. We do this to, you know, stay in contact with Uncle Chris and, right. and Erica. And, you know, you know, of course, there's some bragging rights and there's some good natured competitiveness, but really it's about the relationships and just keeping those. Right. To bring it back to music and movies, mm-hmm. I feel like my brilliant wife, Farinaz, she is a, a genius besides the one mistake that she made in selecting me. <laughs> That's her one downfall, but you know, going on 20 years now, so we'll, uh, you know, too late for that. (laughs) But one of the things that we love to do is actually go through periods of music with our kids. Mm -hmm. And then based on the sounds, having them guess within a couple of years, what period or what era that music could have come from and what may have led to that. Same thing with movies, you know, you watch part of the Marvel universe. And then you, my 12-year-old son, Anima, and my 16-year-old daughter, Nika, then we watch the behind the scenes about what we missed because that helps us to find context and connections. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean about, it's all about progressions and connections, whether we call that math or whether we call that insight or structure, it's all there. Yeah. Joel, Ava, do you have anything as we wrap up here? Just in hearing... Farshid, uh, talk about that. I'm going to mention something. I, I was just listening to this podcast series on Spotify called like 60 songs that explained the nineties. And there was a uh, one about, I want it that way by the backstreet boys the inf- <laughs> and uh, talking about the mathematics of that. And like, like the mathematics of making a hit song, I think oh, Farshid, yeah. you, you might like uh-huh. that uh, episode, but just, but anyway, all those sorts of things, like talking about the context in those songs and like how much even the song Hey Jealousy, which I'd never thought twice about. There was like a <laughs> 60 minutes a podcast episode about it. And it's like, and then it, it's coming back to what you were talking about, Fresh. Like every, you know, these songs are, you know, there's either I want it that way. That's there's a money making like formula for that one. But Hey Jealousy, there's like some like dark themes about a guy's life within that song. It's like, I never thought twice about it. But now it's like, 
I don't know, everything in this episode, you're kind of talking about person first in everything mm-hmm. with the teaching mm-hmm. of mathematics and like even to think like with songs, with movies and like there's always this ingredient of humanity in all of it. And how do we bring that to the surface? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that's a that's a good message that you've put forth for us. And I'm glad you uh, brought up these ideas. These are the things where it's one of the privileges of teaching is that our students become our teachers in what works and how it works and why it works and what's relevant and how it connects to their daily life. And so this is when, in a beautiful way, the power dynamic shifts without us even realizing it, but it's based on relationships and authenticity. Beautiful. Farshi, do you have anything to promote? Our students, our wonderful teachers, our community that keeps sustaining us when life is hard. If anything we've learned over the past couple of years, then it's the importance of a support structure. I don't know that we do enough to promote those who elevate the elevators, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Those who empower others who might be in the position to empower our students, our schools, and our communities, and finding ways of, of learning together and growing that way. So I would start there as far as professional things to to promote. I'm more excited about some recent things that we are doing in collaboration. So I'm at the University of Central Florida, and we're working on an NSF grant where we basically are focused on professional development and how we that can impact our programs, our secondary ed program and mathematics education, and then seeing how math educators, mentor teachers, prospective teachers, supervisors, internship supervisors, how we all can work together to towards a common goal. That is so empowering and that is so powerful because we see its effect. And then you see the students and they just light up, but there's a lot of work that goes into making that happen. Mm-hmm. So I would say sort of promoting efforts that elevate students and schools, both at the elementary and the secondary level, because that's also another almost invisible boundary that doesn't always need to be at the forefront. We teach people. They happen to go across different grades and in different buildings, but buildings don't, shouldn't define us. Farshi, thanks so much for joining us today. This has been a delightful conversation. I really appreciate you sharing with us today. Thank you for the opportunity. I really enjoy speaking with each of you and the, uh, the chance to learn through the podcast series. It's wonderful. Thanks. And thanks again to you listeners for listening to the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. We hope you're able to implement something you just heard and take an opportunity to interact with other math teacher educators. And also, we'd like to know what you'd like to hear in upcoming podcasts and who you'd like to hear from. You can let us know through the virtual suggestion box. Find it at the Contact Us page at teachingmathteachingpodcast.com or in the show notes for this episode.